Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianmedia.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. We're continuing with our series on the Eucharist, Byzantine style, those from the Eastern Christian perspective. But before we get further into that, like to take note of a few things coming up this week in our liturgical calendar because it's pretty rich once again. It's this Sunday. Today is the Sunday of the Fathers of the First Six Ecumenical Councils. Towards the end of the week, we have the Feast of the Prophet Elijah. And then before that, in between those two dates, we have the Feast of St. Vladimir the Great, equal to the Apostles, very significant in the Eastern churches of the Slavic heritage, St. Vladimir the Great. But we also have to make notice, as we always do here, because it's rather exclusive to Light of the East, of certain things are happening in the Eastern churches around the world, globally, not just here at home and in America, but also globally, because we do have an affinity to our Eastern Catholic brethren around the world, especially the Middle East. And we want to draw attention to, especially in this time in which the Catholic Church in America is having to fight for religious liberty. And that fight is just beginning. Hopefully it won't get worse, but I'm afraid it probably will. But on that note, we are at one with our brothers and sisters around the world who have known great suffering and persecution for religious liberty, and certainly in the Middle East. And we want to draw attention to that right now, especially as a result of a certain incident. Once again, another priest has been killed in the Middle East by Islamic extremists connected to Al-Qaeda. It's a Syrian Catholic priest named Father Francois Murat, and he was killed by beheading. They beheaded him in a village in Syria. He's building a monastery. He's trying to establish a monastery. He was in a village that was under attack, had been persecuted, and he could have left. And like many other Christians there who have stuck it out on behalf of others, on behalf of their faith, he became a martyr. So we want to offer prayers for the Christians of Syria who are suffering greatly. It's something you don't hear about in the mainstream media, but you hear about it here on Light of the East. What you're not hearing is that our country appears to be planning to help the so-called rebels in Syria. And what you're not hearing, although you're hearing it here in Light of the East, is that the so-called rebels there are infiltrated by Islamic extremists who are bent on wiping out Christianity. And they certainly do so by cutting off what they think is the head of Christianity, and I mean that literally. They cut off the heads of priests, and they kidnap bishops, and they kill Christians of all ages and persuasions. And our nation is on the verge of assisting those people. Now, not that our nation wants to have Christians killed, but our government is planning to assist the rebels in Syria, and they're not telling you, though we are here in the East, that these rebels include those who are Islamic extremists who are bent dedicated to 
wiping out Christianity, certainly in the Middle East and Syria. So we have to be aware, and you're made aware here exclusively on Light of the East because we bring to you the riches of the Eastern churches all around the world, and we're very much at one with our brothers and sisters of the Eastern churches all around the world, not just here in America, to really feel for our persecuted brethren in the Middle East. That's happening in Egypt, it's happening in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq. And unfortunately, that spirit of persecution of religious liberty and certainly of Christians and particular Catholics is going to come to America. The seeds of it are already being planted here. And that's why we've been praying as a church, East and West in America, for religious liberty, especially this past several weeks with the fortnight for freedom that the Catholic bishops have called for. Hopefully you all heard about it. Certainly we did at Annunciation Church. We prayed the special service of the Paracus service, the Office of Consolation to the Mother of God. So what seems to be remote and far away is actually very close, and it's coming our way. The seed's already being planted, and you need to know this. I know you're not going to hear it anywhere else, but you will hear it here on Light of the East. So our prayers are with Francois Murad, Father Francois Murad. May God grant him eternal rest where the just repose, where there is no more sighing, sorrow, or sin, but only life everlasting. May his memory be eternal. And we pray for the Syrian church and all persecuted Christians, especially in the Middle East. As I mentioned, this Sunday in the Byzantine liturgical calendar is a Sunday of the fathers of the six ecumenical councils. In the Eastern churches, we put a lot of emphasis on the councils. Well, the Western church does too, of course. But in the East, they're really big because most of them occurred in the East. And they occurred because there was always a question that had to be settled about, in one way or another, the Holy Trinity. You know, that's what our faith is all about, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do we articulate? What do we believe about the three persons of the Trinity, and in particular, Jesus Christ, because he had two natures, which brings in a further kind of consternation to understand in our little minds. And so as a result, many times there would be wrong interpretations. And these are wrong interpretations would, would sometimes be coerced, imposed upon people. They would become somewhat the way of the land or of thinking, but they were wrong. And so the church foresaw what could happen with wrong thinking, especially on the Trinity and the natures of Christ. And so it would convene councils. Sometimes these councils were convened by the emperor because he saw there would be great unrest in the country over these issues. And so they would bring together these councils of bishops and leaders and theologians, deacons and priests, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they would hash out these arguments and there were six, and these are the six. The first one was in Nicaea in 325, and that, of course, was to refute the Arian heresies, where we get our Nicene Creed. Actually, it's called the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. Well, it's a mouthful, <laughs> but it's originally the Nicene Creed. This is where the church had to come forward and say that Jesus Christ was, in fact, divine and human. So it's always a question of how to articulate and understand these mysteries where how can something be this and this at the same time? And I always say that that's the genius of the East. The genius of the East is being able to live in the both and, to understand some things to a certain extent, but not to understand other things, and yet to live in that tension. That's what mystery is. I think that's the greatest gift of the Eastern spirituality, that we live in the both and. And so sometimes there were confusions about that. It's not easy to live in the both and. We always want to separate things out so we can fully understand it. Anytime we don't understand something, we sometimes try to redefine it for our little brains. And that's when we end up with wrong teaching. And wrong teaching can create all kinds of evil. That's right, evil. The persecutions happening against Christians is from wrong thinking. 
from a rejection of Jesus Christ, from not acknowledging Him as the Lord and Savior, as God and man. Once you reject that truth, you open yourselves up to all kind of wrong thinking and bad actions, and in fact, straight out evil. So the first council of Nicaea in 325 happened to maintain, to establish the fact that Jesus Christ was in fact divine as well as human. The second council in Constantinople in 381 was to refute the Macedonian heresy, which was a wrong thinking about God and the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Now, the third council was in Ephesus in 431, and it was to refute the Nestorian heresy against the mother of God. There's some interesting information from the good old-fashioned, I got an old copy of the Catholic Encyclopedia, which I still find very helpful. And here's what it says about the Nestorian heresy. Is the heresy claimed that there are not only two natures in Christ, but also two persons in Christ. And the doctrine is named after Nestorius. He was a patriarch of Constantinople. So you see, even patriarchs, even bishops, leaders of a great church can be wrong. That's the genius of the church, that no one person speaks for the church. The Pope speaks on behalf of the church, not for himself. He doesn't make up things like some of these patriarchs did. The doctrine is named after Nestorius, patriarch of Constantinople. This is in 428 to 431 AD. And his actions instigated a controversy, but he himself did not necessarily preach the doctrine of Nestorianism. But the controversy began when he refused to call Mary the mother of God, saying that this title ignored Christ's humanity and that her title ought properly to be Mother of Christ. Now, you can see where someone can slip in that heresy, that thinking, very easily. Now, his followers extend this point of view and emphasize the separateness of the human and divine in Christ, claiming the fact that there were two separate persons or wills that acted in agreement with each other. The church teaches that Christ's divine and human natures are united in one person, the incarnate Word of God. Now, Cyril of Alexandria was the most fervent opponent of Nestorianism, and his opposition was further stimulated by the political rivalry of the two seas of Constantinople and Alexandria. But what's also interesting here is that Pope Celestine I was called upon to intervene, and eventually Nestorius was condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431. See, it's interesting that the Pope was called to intervene. So it shows you how the Church did, and does, it should, breathe, that John Paul II would say, with both lungs, east and west, and where the place of the Pope was, even the eyes of the east, especially centuries ago. We're going to talk more about the six ecumenical councils, also about the Eucharist, when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion, and to tell the story of the eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Seeds of love endure. Hitler and Stalin didn't. And now, a Sheptitsky Institute Minute with Father Peter Galadza. During World War II, the Ukrainian Catholic Archbishop Andrei Sheptitsky saved hundreds of Jews from Hitler's Holocaust. Kurt Lewin, the son of the murdered chief rabbi of Lviv, was one of them. In 1990, the Ukrainian Catholic Church emerged from 50 years of Stalinist and Soviet oppression. 
Lewin later wrote, The compass that guided me all these years was the memory of the encounter with Archbishop Sheptitsky and his brother Clement, two spiritual giants who by their example charted a course for many. The efforts of their lifetime seem to be destroyed at the end of their lives, but time has shown that the seeds they sowed resulted in a rich and rewarding harvest. To learn about degree programs in Eastern Christian Studies, visit shiptitskyinstitute.ca. That's S-H-E-P-T-Y-T-S-K-Y institute.ca. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. You're listening to the choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the sacred liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you... Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loy, your host. On this Sunday of the Fathers of the Six Ecumenical Councils in the Byzantine Liturgical Calendar, and we're enumerating those six councils, and we're on to the fourth one. The fourth council was in Chalcedon in 451, and that refuted the Monophysite heresy. Now, the Monophysite heresy, again, it's always about the natures of Christ. It was perpetrated by an abbot of the monastery at Constantinople. His name was Eutyches. And he taught that there was only one nature in Christ. Catholic Church teaches, of course, that there are, Christ possessed two natures, one human and the other divine. And the heresy of monophysitism is traced to the writings of Eutyches, as I mentioned, and it said that Christ had only one nature. In other words, it was something like he would say that the divine nature would kind of assume or consume the human nature. So here we have in the one heresy, an Arian heresy, the denial of Christ's divinity, in the Monophysite heresy, later on, we have denial of his humanity. So once again, you see what happens. The whole key is this. Whenever we try to live in either or, in other words, we try to put into our heads how something can be this and therefore not that at the same time, when we do that, we run into trouble. Life is lived. God is better understood as much as he can be understood by looking at things through the mystery, the genius of the both and. So Jesus Christ is both God and man, fully God and fully man, like us in every way in his humanity, except, of course, for sin. But, of course, sin doesn't really belong to humanity. It's a foreign object that came into humanity. So Christ is fully human and fully divine all at the same time. And so the Monophysite heresy, that was defeated, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. Then we have the Fifth Council of Constantinople, which refuted the heresy of Origen, the Sixth Council was in Constantinople. It refuted the Monothelite heresy, which is related to the Monophysite heresy. But well, these are mouthfuls, aren't they? <laughs> Monothelite means 
that Christ had only one will. Well, there was a divine will kind of overshadowed his human will. You can see how that's related to the monophysite heresy. That, of course, is incorrect. Christ had two wills, divine and human. He was one person, but two natures. One person, but two natures. Now, the Seventh Ecumenical Council will save for another time because the church separates that one out because it's special in its own way. It had to do with the iconoclast heresy. So, a great Sunday with these six ecumenical councils, and this is how we come to know our faith. I mean, our faith is never articulated by any one person. In other words, not even the Pope. And we have to be very careful about this. The Pope does not say, get up there and make up what the church says. In other words, it's not him who says, look, I'm the expert here, and here's what the church says. That's how other faiths, such as Protestantism, the faith of Protestantism, Methodist, Baptist, and so on, Lutheranism, that's how they were started. They all could be attributed to one person who said, my way is the more correct way, so then people began to follow them. Well, the Pope doesn't do that. The Pope speaks for the church, but for the church. He's kind of like, in a sense, the ultimate press secretary for the church. He doesn't make up stuff on his own. And he draws upon what has been laid out over time by the councils. So that's, in a sense, it's a proof that the Catholic Orthodox way is the fullness of revelation. Because it comes down to us not by any one person's opinion or thought, but by the teaching, the thought of the church as communicated through councils and proclaimed, yes, by popes as the supreme kind of, I'll call it in a sense, press secretary. It's a manner of speaking. Just try to use an analogy here for our understanding. It's very important to understand the place of the pope, especially in East-West dialogue, ecumenically speaking. So now let's move on back to our series on the Eucharist. And we come to that point where we actually receive now the Eucharist. In the Eastern churches, Eucharist is given to those who have received the sacraments of confirmation and baptism. In other words, it's a third of the sacraments of initiation, the life of the church and the life of the Holy Trinity. And this happens regardless of age. So it's Many Eastern churches, you might witness, if you come there, if you're not Eastern Rite, and you come to attend an Eastern Catholic liturgy, you might see babies receiving Holy Communion, or children under the age of seven. And that's perfectly normal for us. And it was that way, actually, from the beginning, East and West, and even in early Christianity. Later on, it was the Western Lung of the Church that separated out Confirmation and Eucharist in terms of ages. The East kept the sequence together. So when a person's baptized, as I just recently did, baptized a baby at my parish, the baby is baptized, receives confirmation, what we call chrismation, and Eucharist all at the same time. Eucharist, in a sense, brings to a certain fullness or completion the other sacraments. Everything becomes summed up in the Eucharist as it's united with the very body and blood of Christ. It's a way of fulfilling or completing or perfecting or bringing to their ultimate destiny the other sacraments, such as baptism and chrismation. That's why we have Eucharist accompanying the other sacraments. Now, when we approach the Eucharist, we do so after having prepared ourselves spiritually and physically. In the Eastern churches, we still ask people to fast. Now, this may vary between Eastern churches, but they fast from food and drink at least a few hours. And in some Eastern churches, it's down to one hour before receiving Eucharist. Water, of course, can be received any time. But the fasting is not the only part of the preparation. The part of the preparation for Eucharist in, in, includes also 
coming with a sense of forgiveness, having gone to confession if necessary. You don't have to go to confession every time you receive Eucharist in the Eastern churches, although some Eastern churches insist on that. Uh, By and large, you don't have to. But of course, it's highly encouraged. And also, our preparation, I call it putting our our Eucharistic or liturgical game face, really occurs with the divine office, which would mean the evening before at Vespers. It's a Saturday Vespers service, which is called Great Vespers. From the setting of the sun and with the prayer of the Vespers, we begin to move into mentally, spiritually, even physically, a preparation for Eucharist. So a person can actually fast longer than one hour or three hours. In fact, it used to be all through the night. If a person wants to do that, that's highly recommended. It's highly commendable. Because the idea is that we go through this time of preparation to receive Christ as our first food of the day, on the Lord's Day, at liturgy, on Sunday. Now, we might need food in between a little bit. That's okay. But at least don't have any an hour before receiving Eucharist, which actually for many Eastern liturgies could mean you can practically eat food up till the time, the beginning of liturgy. Usually by the time you're receiving Eucharist, it's about a solid hour later in many Eastern liturgies. But the point is not to be minimalistic. The point is to maintain the spirit of things. And that's the spirit of preparing ourselves to become living tabernacles. That's right. What's in a tabernacle? The Eucharist is present in the tabernacle. The real presence is there. We become human tabernacles when we receive the Eucharist. So it only stands to reason that we would try to prepare ourselves as much as possible, not minimally, but as much as possible. So we ought to be fasting as much as we can the night before, praying the Vespers, kind of quieting ourselves down, maybe reading the scriptures for the next day, looking at the troparion or the themes of the, the feast of that day, if there is a particular one like today with the ecumenical councils. And what we do is we move into our reception of Eucharist in this way. And as we come to that moment, there's a rather lengthy prayer of Eucharist that everybody says, the priest together with the people. It's a prayer preparing us for communion. It's a very penitential prayer, and it goes like this. O Lord, I believe and profess that you are truly Christ, the Son of the living God, who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the first. Now, I'm going to pause right there, and we probably won't get through the whole prayer today. I'm going to pause because that line there, sinners of who I am the first. Sometimes it throws people. They think to themselves, well, I'm not the greatest sinner in the world. I know people are probably worse than me. Well, there's two answers to that. It's a twofold answer. Number one, this is actually a reference to the scriptures from the epistle to Timothy, in which St. Paul refers to himself as the sinners of who I am the first. And what we do in the Eastern churches is we string together actual phrases or paraphrases of the scripture to make our prayer. So what you're saying is you're saying something from the Scripture. So you can't go wrong by saying something from the Scripture in your prayer. Secondly, when we think about ourselves as sinners, we know that our spirituality teaches us we cannot judge somebody else. as we cannot judge their sinfulness, the interior disposition of their heart. Only God can. So that leaves us with ourselves. We're the only ones whose sins we know best, whose guilt we know best. And that's why we can, with all honesty say that we are among the first of sinners because we cannot say we cannot say that about anybody else truthfully speaking and so there's two reasons why we use that very poignant line in our prayer the very beginning of this prayer who came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the first we're going to continue looking at this very significant and meaningful prayer the preparation prayer for Eucharist next time I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East
Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois 60491. That's Light of the East 14610 Will Cook Road spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the light of the east, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. <laughs>